You're listening to Workers Power with Jackson. And I'm Calypso. On 4ZZZ. Uh, so today on the show, we have an interview with Virginia from the Brisbane Labour History Association, who will be talking about the punk scene in the 70s and 80s here in Brisbane. Hell yes. Yeah. Uh, so about politics and music and how those things intersect and how... How, how that uh, affected and how y- peop- young people back then interacted with that um, in both a political and artistic way. Um, and of course we have our usual workers' action, including some pretty big stories this week. I'm sure you've seen, pa- perhaps you've seen in the news about uh, what's going on down in, what happened in Sydney yesterday. Uh, and we'll definitely be talking about that, though with less of the <laughs> spin that's been yeah. put on that story. <laughs> uh, in fact, we'll be spinning it the other way around. Um, and, of course, we'll have our world-famous Skellywag of the Week. That's which, right. Which we, which we have already decided uh-huh. with who will be that. Always. Yes, and we definitely won't be trying to find someone to do that in the middle of this show. But Unrelated, if there's a particular scallywag you want to be scallywag of the week, <laughs> maybe text in on 0420-626-733. Um, and before we get started, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast, who are the Yagara and Turrbal people. This land was stolen and never ceded. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we acknowledge all First Nations comrades listen today, listening today. We stand in solidarity of First Nations people in their struggles for recognition, repra- reparation, and land rights. We live in benefit on stolen land. It's time to pay the rent. Um, and to do that, we are going to be sharing some of the stories of what is going on with First Nations people fighting back against the system here uh, recently. The latest news. That's right. We've got our first story that the clips I will share with us. Traditional owners in Northern Territory water fight. The native title holders for an outback station in the Northern Territory will ask the Supreme Court to set aside a government decision to allow the use of groundwater for a planned 3,500 hectare fruit and vegetable project. The Empoir Pur Aboriginal Corporation is seeking to overturn the decision by Northern Territory. Tory Families Minister Kate Warden to grant Fortune Agribusiness a 30-year groundwater extraction licence for Singleton Station, 380 north of Alice Springs, for up to 40 gigalitres per year. The Central Land Council, which is acting on behalf of Empoir said the court would be asked to declare parts of the extraction licence invalid or to quash it altogether. To quote, we will show that the minister didn't comply with the Northern Territory Water Act, failed to consider Aboriginal cultural values and other important matters, and that her decision was seriously irrational, Council Chief Executive Les Turner said. The water licence decision is unconscionable, considering the impacts of climate change on highly vulnerable desert communities. Yeah, who, who needs more water? Who needs 40 gigalitres of water? This this corporation that's already got a licence to extract groundwater or fruit and vegetables for the local community. I think that one's pretty obvious. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely the water would be definitely put back 
to better use by the people living on the land instead of a business who's just trying to grow some crops for profit. Uh, and like by there's also the fact that by taking all this water, they are depriving the like mm-hmm. the environment, the surrounding environment from the water. Uh, and like groundwater is a tricky thing too. If like you take too much of it, then it just runs out. It doesn't replenish very quickly. We've already seen some of the environmental consequences of horrible water mismanagement in this country. A couple of years ago, you might remember the disaster that happened on the Murray-Darling River, mm. where because the cotton farmers were taking so much water from the river, the water levels got low enough that algae horrible bad algae algae that killed all the fish Um, and we're still dealing with the consequences of that disaster there's so much water mismanagement and it's just because the you know the ministers like this minister they they're in the pockets of these big corporations yeah Yeah. and the agribusiness they don't care about taking care of the environment they care about getting as much profit as quickly as possible and that simply does not uh work when you're trying to like keep uh, an environment an ecosystem alive because if you take too much without giving back then if there's an imbalance and it runs out of everything it needs to keep existing And we see time and time again that the people who are at the forefront of this issue are our First Nation comrades fighting for better water management. Mm, Absolutely. Um, Now we're going to move on to our next story. This is about a uh, death death of an First Nations person uh, in the health system. So, Ricky Hampson lost his son Dougie six months ago. He still feels the pain deeply every day. He was a devoted father. He was a very old soul, very humble, the sort of bloke that would do anything for you, he said to he said of the 36-year-old Camilleroy Dungari man. Dougie's mother, Lydia Chatfield, also feels the loss profoundly. To quote, he was just our pride and joy, you know, you have your first child, he was everything, everything. The loss is eating away at the couple. The tragic details occupy Mr. Hampson's every waking thought, increasingly so as he's learned more and more about how his son died shortly after being discharged from hospital in the regional New South Wales town of Dubbo. It was a Saturday in August last year. Dubbo was experiencing a COVID outbreak at the time. Ricky Hampson, loved by his family as Dougie, had been tested earlier in the day but was yet to receive his result. Around 5pm, in severe pain, he went to emergency. He told, he'd, he told staff he'd heard a popping sound, like a tear inside him. They kept him there for 19 hours, just monitoring, Mr. Hampson told NITV's The Point program. No senior medical officer ever examined him, and they ended up releasing him the next day, just before lunch. He went back there. He went back to the house where he was staying at the time, and they tried to wake him the next morning, and he was passed. Since then, Mr. Hampson has doggedly been asking questions and seeking answers about what happened. They never took any scans, no x-rays or anything like that, Mr. Hampson said. We spoke to the director up there of the hospital, or one of the doctors, and he said that if they had done a simple scan, they would have had him in surgery that night and he would be here today. Within 24 hours of his release, Dougie had died from two perforated ulcers. An internal hospital investigation late last year confirmed the family's fear. It's just plain discrimination and bias. It rocked us. It really has. The whole family. 
The report by Western New South Wales Local Health revealed the hospital staff had made up their minds early with bias based on Mr. Hampson's presentation and history. They admitted to treating him with bias because of his presentation, the way he looked because he admitted to drug use, Mr. Hampson said. They thought, well, here's another black fellow off the streets. It's just plain discrimination and bias. The Serious Adverse Event Review report by Western New South Wales Local Health found the review team considered there was an early diagnostic closure and anchoring bias related to the patient's presentation, history of cannabis use, and subsequent management. Uh, the family has called for an inquest and wants, a set and wants to set up a foundation to help other families whose loved ones have also been let down by the health system. Mr. Hampson said the family is working with the National Justice Project. All we can do now is just fight for his justice. That's what we want. We want the world to know what is still going on here, and it's got to stop. It's really got to stop, Mr. Hampson said. The Australian Indigenous Doctors Association said bias and discrimination is rife within the health sector, as well as other areas such as education and retail settings. Uh, the director and watcher Balukman, Dr. Glenn Harrison, called for systemic change, including 24-hour patient access to Aboriginal hospital liaison workers and greater links with Aboriginal community-controlled health services. To quote, biases from a health workforce means that you can't actually give the appropriate level of care that a patient needs, Dr. Harrison said. If you've got a health system that is regularly showing bias and poor outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients, then you have really got to consider your workforce and how you can actually change that cultural awareness, cultural safety and actual model of care that you're providing for your patients, which is what the health workforce and health service is for at the end of the day. And quote, Western New South Wales local health district said it had seven Aboriginal health p practitioners at its Dubbo Health Service who work on a rotating roster in the emergency department seven days a week. This is a outrage. Yeah. Um, and this happens a lot. Mm. We hear about closing the gap. We hear about um, how Indigenous Australians have a much lower life expectancy than white Australians. There's a reason for that. And a big reason is the disparity in health services and the way um, a lot of these health concerns are dismissed and not taken seriously mm. when in many cases they are very serious, as um, is the case in this story. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the fact that it was a big part of that dismissal was due to drug use as well. Um, it will that can create a lot of danger in the health system as people will be afraid to admit to drug use which can then like lead to further deaths because then like they're taking medications that weren't aren't compatible yeah aren't compatible with the drugs they've been on and yeah so if you if you dismiss people due to drug use then that's unacceptable yeah that that that's another way to create more deaths in the health system these doctors you know you, when you're a doctor you sign an oath uh, to help people yeah. and then you turn away someone who needs help that's unacceptable Absolutely. if they can't go to hospital where can they go we mm. need to uh, do better yeah definitely it is, there needs to be more like oh, like just not be, people not being racist yeah. in the health <laughs> system yeah, yeah the, just like don't be racist to people and actually treat them for their problems and this is a problem that um, a lot of women face as well with the health system. They're having their problems mm. dismissed just because 
Oh, terrible. you're exaggerating. Yeah. You're exaggerating the pain. No, I'm feeling a lot of pain, you know? Mm. And it's it's happening. Um, and we just need to take everyone's health issues seriously. We all need to be able to go to hospital for something serious, for an emergency, and be treated. This person wasn't even examined. Mm. They dismissed him without even examining. That's unacceptable. Absolutely. Hello and welcome back to Workers Power on 4ZZZ. Uh, so we're here on uh, Workers Power um, and we have a special interview coming up. We're just starting that right now. Yes, we're interviewing yes. Virginia from the Brisbane Labour History Association who will be talking to us about the punk scene in the 1780s and, and especially the political side of that scene and the uh, how that... Uh, the students uh, like interacted with it and with the impacts here in Brisbane. Hello, Virginia. Hi, lovely to be here. Welcome uh, to Workers' Power. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, um, it's interesting. I think I probably have been a political activist all my life. Um, my earliest memories are of the Wharfies picnic and the meat workers picnic and I have to say I put my love of unionism down to the fact that they always had lots of fairy floss and really excellent sausages. <laughs> Delicious. And I think that might be a lesson for many people. Don't forget plenty of sugar and plenty of sausages for anything like that. I, I actually think the amount of um, picket lines I've been on that have been fuelled by the Meat Workers Union um, are many and legion, and we still love them to this day. They're fantastic people. But um, I think probably some of the significant things in my life was going to university for free in 1975. Mm. Later on, um, I, I've worked a lot with unions as, and been a member of eight or nine unions and I have to say I then later joined the Labor Party. But another significant um, time in my life was when I lived in Ipswich and Pauline Hanson got elected. And during that time, she was so hideous so divisive that uh, there was a natural upswelling of the local community and we organised this fantastic committee called the Ipswich Anti-Racism Committee and that ran for about two and a half years and very effectively organised against Pauline Hanson when the major political parties simply didn't want to. And then shortly after that, I actually ran against Pauline Hanson when she ran in Blair. And again, it was a fantastic campaign, but nobody ever heard about it because guess what? The major political parties did not want to give her any oxygen. So it was an early lesson in the fact that the major political parties live within their comfort zone. That's very but true. Well, yeah, and there's certain times in your life where you have to take a moral stand and 
I was relaying something about this to somebody else recently. When I campaigned, you often go to big functions and Kim Beasley would come along and the local candidate in in Ipswich, which was the seat of Oxley, would get up, they'd be acknowledged, um, other people in the audience would be acknowledged, I'd be standing right near the door and they would not acknowledge me. And it was really embarrassing. People would come up to me and say, doesn't the party like you? And I'd just laugh. But that was their policy. Oh, we don't give it any oxygen. Of course, if we hadn't run such a fantastic campaign against her, and it was incredibly grassroots with many, many left groups coming and helping and lending a hand and working together... Uh, you know, she would have actually got up and I said, oh, wouldn't that have been a disaster? But, you know, I'm talking 25 years later and guess what? She is still here because nobody would take some sort of moral imperative and say, we have to finish this party off, we have to finish this woman off. But no, they wouldn't do it. Anyway, that is a little bit about my background. Um but not really to the point. However, I do like talking about the Hanson campaigns because there were so many lessons to be learnt and I feel that people didn't learn them. So what lessons can we learn today? Well, look, I think one of the amazing things was the community activism in Ipswich. Ipswich was completely split down the middle. I would be abused by taxi drivers um, because they'd find out that I was organising a rally. But what happened was we'd have a rally and 2,000 people would turn up. We'd do something in Queen's Park and down the road she would have a hall and she'd have 60 people who were bussed in from Gympie. she, most of her support came from out of the electorate because as she became more and more divisive, the number of groups that she insulted and denigrated just increased, like single parents. I was a single parent at the time. You know, we were all being lazy and staying at home, um, you know, living off the pension. Um, Aboriginal people on that campaign... We never spoke for any of the community groups, so the Chinese Forum, the Vietnamese Forum, they would offer their own speakers. We didn't tell them what to talk about. We didn't say to the Aboriginal community, oh, no, um, we'll ask for this person. No, they always went away, came back with who they wanted to represent them. And we kept some simple... principles like having a gender equity speaking platform very Mm, important very important but in 98 well 96 to 98 that was still not important i was on lots of council committees and stuff where i might be the only woman so you had to really push to pave the way for other women in politics well I have done a lot of that and at that time when I ran against Pauline Hanson the Labor Party for about four years had been having the debate and in 94 
we had our, gen, uh, our equity rules put in to the national base, which was, oh, I think it was 40, 40% first uh, of women must be candidates. And by 98, they'd moved it up to 45%. And recently, the general rule is now 50% have to be in winnable, pre-selectable seats. Wow. Of course, there's still a lot of pushback around that. But I find that having quotas, and you'll often find the Liberal Party have, have just formed a women's group to get women into politics. How mm. fascinating. <laughs> that would have been unheard of back rules. in the day, hey? So, uh, sorry, Calypso? That would have been unheard of back then, hey? No, but I often had discussions because one of the things is that in politics, you, you talk to... I talk to Liberal women in Ipswich all the time at council elections, at state elections, at federal elections, and they all... Sometimes we'd go to functions and then we'd meet afterwards and have a coffee, and they were all so jealous of the Labor Party because they said, we have nothing like that, and it's such a nasty fight. And, of course, what have we seen for the last three years except the nasty fight? Mm. Now, I'm not saying the party, Labor Party, is perfect, but we do have these arguments, these debates, and we continue to insist that quotas, quotas um, for our First Nations people are really, really important. And I think over time, I've seen over the th last 30 years, quite a change in the debate and quite a change in leadership styles engendered by the fact that there's more women. Yes, 100%. You know. Do you think that women in the punk scene had any effect on that political change? Ah, now that is a fascinating question. And uh, I think I might just go back to 75. Um, I, I think... What happened in 75, 74, 75, was that the Saints became sort of what were later called punk. I mean, they were punk before the Sex Pistols and things like that. Mm. So I think that when I went there to university and it was free, and I came from a very working-class suburb, Anala, and my feeling when I got there was not only as a woman, but a working-class woman, I just didn't belong. Mm. And part of my punk identity has really gave me the proper armour and the proper attitude, I suspect, to cope with what was being thrown at me. Um, people often are really surprised when I tell of incidences in my first couple of years um, that went on there. And I, I think that part of the music scene and that was also, it was a bit of an arty scene. So, 
you know, I was clearly recognisable in 1975 as a punk. Yes. And that was before it happened um, because I would wear leather miniskirts, um, zip-up vinyl short dresses. Hell yeah. And black boots. And people would... They know not to mess with you. (laughs) Yes. And people would walk around me. And and at one stage, I dyed my hair green before Johnny Rotten did it oh. at the uni hairdressers. And, um, but people would avoid me. And I went to uh, a dance at the Refect once with Robert Forster and, um, and what was part of the go-betweens there. And I stood at the bar and I thought, oh, I'll just get a beer. And I was standing there and this hippie boy next to me with long blonde hair turned around took one look at me and then poured a whole glass of beer over my head <laughs> oh. oh my god do you know what, what what do you say to things like that i was telling somebody that recently and i said but surely not and i said but surely yes it was enough it was so anti-establishment that people didn't know what to take, make of me. They didn't know what Amazing to make of me. Amazing even just your fashion choices and your presentation can make people feel so personally threatened. Yes, and I've never been able to understand that because personally, I am such a marshmallow. I'm a very kind person, unless I'm ferociously drunk, which <laughs> possibly could have been the case then. But, you know, never really drunk before midnight. I had a little rule there. But anyway, I, I it's just that it was an overwhelming place and I was talking to Robert last night and I said, what, you know, what do you remember that first year? And he said, that was the word he used, overwhelming. And we were talking about the Refec area and the university area because of all the hoo-ha about they want to take it away from the student union. And he said... One of the things he remembers is standing in front of the notice boards and he said it was incredible. So you had the anarchists, the socialists, the communists, the Marxists, the feminist collectives, poet and author events. Um, You had all those bands and I remember so many marches even in that first year um, for TEAS, which was the Tertiary Education Assistance Grant or something. So we got something a little bit less than the doll. And there were constant margins because we wanted more money. Who wouldn't? And I thought that was really funny, but we'd get organised in that space, in that forum area, and then march out, often to be met with a wall of cops. But the other thing about that was there was just a real divide. There were really rich people at the university who were always going to go there and then there were a lot of poor ones and I relied on that tertiary education grant and I also, for instance, would go around the refec at lunchtime and collect all the bottles and then sometimes have a couple of bucks to go to the RE. So, you know, I wasn't proud i have to say but you know i had to catch two buses and a train to get to uni from 
Inala, all the isolation and stuff like that. You were stranded. And that first year, I just, I definitely didn't feel like I belonged. Um, Robert said that he was just such a quiet, shy mouse that he just went round just drinking everything in. And um, I have to say that first year, because that's the year Triple Z began. Yeah? So how did 4 Triple Z contribute to punk and politics? Well, that was really interesting because when it was started, um, you know, a lot of people had these mythologies about how marvellous everyone was. And Triple Z was and is marvellous. But I have to say there were a group of older men, so late 20s, um, who got the station up and running, did a fabulous job, and particularly the newsroom was in that year, you can imagine, was so inspirational. But that just began. And I <laughs> and Ed was saying they sort of liked things like Fleetwood Mac and Jefferson Airplane. Mm. So it was many years before they gave the Saints a gig. But the Saints did play at the Refec area and that because they put on their own dances. So I know that there was a gig for East Timor in 1975 and it was Friday the 13th of March in the Relax Block, which is the block to the left. And that was an old hall and you could actually go in and have dances there. And that was amazing. I just remember heaps of bikies turning up at it for some bizarre reason. But... Ed's slant on it was that the people who were organising for Triple Z were older, they liked that sort of music and they just didn't know where the Saints music was coming from. It was more based on the roots of rock and roll and people like Johnny Lee Hooker and, you know, I just remember uh, early Beatles, stuff like that. They just... That it wasn't that over-produced, over-polished stuff. Mm. And also, they just simply didn't like the crowd that they pulled. So, but later on, they became much more user-friendly to the young bands. And by six, the end of 68, 67, sorry, 77... <laughs> They were, the go-betweens played there lots of times. There were really amazing gigs, you know. The events were huge and people from all over would come. Would these and gigs inspire And I think that was what, one of the people? other things about the, the um, activism. Yeah. Because that allowed working class, normal people, plumbers, whatever, to come to the university and see, oh, it's, it's just another place. You know, I don't have to be scared about coming here. And it's like when you take to the streets, you take over these spaces and then you feel like you belong. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that was what... I always liked that saying, march with your feet. And there were so many marches I went, but every time I go to a march, I think it's important that there's one more person or you bring five friends with you because that's what they see on the televisions and that's what we have to... You have to 
persuade public opinion. See, and some people will just say you're a mob of ratbags, but you know, remember when they had the big event against the war in Iraq and about 100,000 people came out, you know, in Brisbane? You know, it didn't matter what the press said. They couldn't hide the fact that so many people marched everywhere. That's right. It was the biggest recorded protest in Brisbane's history until just recently with the Black Lives Matter protest. Yes, and that was amazing because I I went to that and made sure all the family came, all your friends came. Um, So important. And people still remember them because of that particular, that vision that picture you see and I remember the MUA dispute and there's lots of amazing I've got all these calendars from the next year where they have these amazing pictures of you know these huge enormous crowds on May Day and um, I think that's why May Day is still so important so important so you've talked a bit about uh, your punk identity um, and you're sort of sort of touching on what I want to talk about now. Um, what, is, what was like the punk community like back then? Uh, like was there a punk community? Was there uh, people who like knew each other and was, was there supporting each other going on, you know, mutual aid and stuff like that? Yeah, there was. And I used 75 as a bit of a watershed because I was out of school and I could go to all these gigs. Um, there was really quite an active scene and it's really different to now because you could just sometimes get yourself into the victory or the stock exchange and say oh yeah we want to have a dance here and they'd say yep good and you'd line up two other bands i did the first dance for the go-betweens which was at the bowls club at um dara right next to the train station there and the other band was the leftovers and that was a hilarious night seared into my memory forever um because the leftovers god bless their little souls took all the door takings stole it out of my handbag and pissed off (laughs) so i had to pay for the heart of the hall and everything um yeah that's what that sort of little scene was like but there were a huge amount of people in 75 supporting the saints and forming their own bands and the saints would get other like-minded people to come along and play and so i remember three or four memorable events at uni for the saints so apart from that timor one which was great fun we also did an event because mainly Chris Bailey's sister, um, Margaret Bailey, who was a very famous actress then, would come in and do it. And um, she would organise them, like the commie party. She'd get the commie party to hire them for the night. But there was a one at the swimming pool that was amazing. Um, and there were, I think there was one in the refect and maybe one somewhere else because there were lots of halls around the university then that you could also use for events. <clears throat> but there were a lot of my friends. Um, the Saints had been going for a, a couple of years by then and they had all these groups 
of young men that followed them and then groups of young women who followed the young men if you get my drift um i but there were quite a few powerful women in that and i think when i think about the go-betweens robert and grant were always quite good with women they weren't snotty or anything and then later when lindy came into the band she bought that forceful feminism and um sort of a very good a different political perspective they were quite naive politically in some ways but you know there was just quite a and it wasn't like the punk scene in britain it wasn't horrible or that people would get drunk and horrible sometimes but it wasn't you know bouncing around headbutting people or spitting all that in fact sometimes that might happen because people thought oh that's cool and groovy but it wasn't it's sort of like the metal scene is now it's really looks threatening but it's not it's it's a really civilized place to actually be fantastic well before we wrap up and go to sidelines is there anything else you wanted to touch on hmm yes well i um i think i just so enjoyed the social activism, the social side of music, but there were a whole lot of people also around that scene who were influential and sort of making us think. So, for instance, I would say that Chris Bailey, his older sister, was expelled from every school in Queensland. about six years before in protest against that she chained herself to the treasury building and um, her father was standing next to her supporting her now she was expelled for handing out the little chairman Mao's little red school book in in um, which was a banned book outside Anala High one of the teachers who really supported her was George Negus. So um, Margaret was always influential in getting the Saints gigs and things like that. And um, I think it was the influence of people like that and with people like Robert through me because he got to meet them all um, was... important because it wasn't just mindless oh yes it's all about rock and roll it's it was more about the music and the importance of that sort of cultural life because that's where the music is important in what sort of cultural life it engenders and it was a questioning anti-establishment um always asking the questions always saying why is it so so i think that was possibly the importance of 75 and we can never go back to what happened before that Mm. i mean that watershed meant that australia was always going to be completely different that's right that's all we have time for today thank you so much for joining us virginia
You're listening to Workers Power on 4ZZZ with Jackson and Calypso. Uh, oh, and thank you very much to Virginia Clark for that terrific interview. Hell yeah. Punk scene in Brisbane in the 17s, 70s and 80s. Um, now we're going to move on to some workers action where we have some pretty cool news stories to yes. talk about. Um uh, well, cool, cool. We have some big news stories. It's one very cool one. One is one that you've already heard about. I'm <laughs> probably, maybe, if you look at the news. So, workers on the New South Wales rail system turned up to work yesterday morning prepared to take part in low-level protected, protected industrial action which would not have impacted commuters, only to be told by management that trains would not be running. Yesterday was also the day Australia's borders opened to international travel, so a big day for public transport. Um, now, to quote, this is a dummy spit from the New South Wales government, uh, Mr. Classens said, who is the RTBU New South Wales secretary. Uh, workers were prepared to take protected industrial action, but only transport management would have noticed the impact, not commuters. The impact of services today is not because of workers' actions, but because the New South Wales government is spitting the dummy and trying to make a point. We're ready to drive the trains whenever the New South Wales government will let us. All, were, all members were at work, ready to work. They were ready and waiting to crew the trains, only to be told the trains aren't running today. There is no impediment, only stubbornness on behalf of the New South Wales government. Uh, the New South Wales government has finally backed down on its outrageous rail uh, on its outrageous rail shutdown last night, agreeing to allow rail workers to continue to drive trains today. The RTBU and the New South Wales government were at talks, attempting to reach an agreement that would allow trains to run, while also allowing workers to exercise their right to take action over the government's refusal to agree to their bi- basic safety, privatisation, and hygiene asks. RTBU New South Wales Secretary Alex Carstens welcomed New South Wales government's decision to stop its rail shutdown and allow trains to run tomorrow. To quote, today's rail, sh- rail shutdown was a huge dummy spit by the New South Wales government, supported by their federal counterparts. It's good to see they've now agreed to let the trains run again, Mr. Clarsen said. We have said all along that the New South Wales government could run services with our bans in place, and we are pleased that they have finally listened. Services may be disjointed, but at least there will be trains moving again. The New South Wales government's treatment of Sydney and New South Wales trains workers and commuters has been appalling for a long time, but then bringing in expensive lawyers to bid in a bid to silence workers and then shutting down the whole rail network and inconvenience, inconveniencing commuter, commuters was a whole new low. To deliberately shut down the rail network on such a big day for many people, seemingly so they can run a fear campaign about unions, is quite extraordinary. Workers will now go back to taking the protected industrial action we planned, action that really only transport management will notice, not commuters. We're always willing to work with the New South Wales government if it means reaching an agreement to keep our railways safe and moving. The parties are set to meet in the Fair Work Commission again on Wednesday. So the workers here, what they're trying to win with their in their current enterprise agreement negotiations and the reason they're taking the action they are is to th- they want a commitment that no train services or lines will be lost in the event of privatization they want to guarantee that any changes to the services will leave them as safe or safer and they want a commitment to maintaining the existing level of hygiene using good full-time jobs 
and I'm curious whether that means like COVID levels of hygiene, which um, and like that would definitely be a an improvement because if it was like disgusting beforehand and the only reason they're getting clean stuff now is because of a pandemic, yeah, it's a good opportunity to try and make that sort of improvement in your workplace. hygiene is Just a human like, right. Let's keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. Let's make sure that our workers don't get sick and our commuters don't get sick and uh, every and like make the rail, the public transport, a safe area to. So they're not even asking for anything extra. They're just asking, please don't take away what we already have, which they had to fight for to begin with. Yeah. So. New South Wales government wants to reduce their rights and reduce their conditions, and they're saying, can we please just keep it the same? Mm. And in response, (laughs) the New South Wales government does this. They shut down the rail network. They don't care about the commuters at all. Yeah. They don't care about the workers at all. (laughs) They don't care about anybody. Hmm. Yeah, no, I'm all for shutting down a rail network as protest action, um, but it, it's it's it, that has to be done in a way with the rest of the community uh, getting behind you and um, like providing support, and it has to be a much bigger thing. Whereas the government decided to just do this in an effort to disrupt everyone's lives yeah and so that a whole bunch of hate and anger would be pointed towards the rtbu so this is sending a message that if you want to stand up to not even improve but to just maintain your basic working conditions everyone gets punished Hmm. if you try to stand up for yourself we're going to punish everyone yeah that's messed up it is messed up it's uh, very much uh, the. It's very much a villain kind of action, like the kind of cliche villain action. Like, oh yes, we're taking hostages, <laughs> basically. Uh, the kind of, yeah, like if you don't, if you don't listen to what I'm say, then we're gonna kill the person you love, or in this case, just like mess up everyone's day. They want us to fight to each you. other, so we don't fight them. Yeah, division. They, they want us to think that the the rail workers are the enemy, and that's who we should direct our anger at instead of the people who actually shut down the trains. Mm. Um, they, they want us to, to fight each other instead of uniting together. Yeah, and the media has done a terrific job in supporting the government in this thing. Just like compl- they, they are not reporting the facts at all, calling it a shutdown because of a strike. But there has been no strike. The industrial action has not affected has not affected the. So that's blatant misinformation. Railway. Yeah, exactly. I'm um, not surprised. <laughs> we all know that all of the major news corporations are in the pocket of Rupert Murdoch, mm. who is best friends with the government. Yeah. Um, uh, this is appalling. This is just a blatant uh, attempt to weaponize fear to separate us. Just when we're starting to get more public support of unions, they had to had to make them look bad. Um, this is a really selfish thing for the government to do, and I'm so angry. Solidarity with the RTBU in New South Wales. Choo choo. Keep on, keep the industrial action going. Uh, the, you can tell the government's scared because they're taking such drastic action. They should be scared. 
I just want to say, this is not how you behave, and this is not how you treat your fellow citizens. This is not how it should be done, and I feel for all of those Sydney-siders yesterday who were affected by the shutdown. The disrespect being shown to their fellow Sydney-siders today for going about their day, kids trying to get to school, parents getting their week underway, all having to deal with the New South Wales government carrying on like this in the middle of the night to cause such a terrible disruption. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> Uh, that was a quote from Scott Morrison with a bit switched out. Yep. <laughs> to blame the New South Wales government, who are the ones at fault there. Um, now we have a terrific win. Yes. Yeah, from the Transport Workers Union. To, to Time take for some good news. Calypso. It is so cool. TWU wins enforceable rates for couriers and Amazon flex drivers in landmark decision. Hell yeah. The Transport Workers Union has won a landmark determination today that means couriers will receive significant improvements to their enforceable rates of pay, including world-first enforceable rates and protections for gig-style Amazon Flex drivers. Hell yeah, a win against Amazon. The New South Wales Industrial Relations Commission determination, the result of industry-wide consultation led by the TWU and involving industry groups, RTO, AI Group and a New South Wales Business Chamber and major transport companies such as FedEx, Global Express and Toll will see owner-drivers of vans with a carrying capacity between 1.5 and 3 tonnes entitled to an enforceable rate of $43.74 an hour, phased in over three years from the 1st of March. The new determination also captures Amazon Flex drivers, who will, for the first time, be entitled to an enforceable rate of $37.80 to be phased in over the next three years. Amazon has previously noted its drivers are covered by the general carrier's contract determination. Under the regulatory instrument, Flex drivers will be the first in the world to enjoy enforceable rates of pay along with rights to dispute resolution union representation and collective bargaining union representation is a big win there yeah that is that is a very important one TWU New South Wales slash Queensland Secretary Richard Olson said the decision was a long time coming and would see significant pay rises for couriers who had gone 15 years without mm. to quote the minimum pay rate for a courier using their own van was set at $28 almost 15 years ago. Since then, their operating costs have skyrocketed, but their pay hasn't changed, leaving some drivers earning below minimum wage after costs. There's a lot of costs that come with driving a van. Yeah, absolutely. Just with driving any vehicle at all. Today's decision will be welcome relief to those drivers, an increase of more than 40% over the next three years to finally catch them up to where they should be after 15 years of stagnant pay. This decision is a massive victory for the thousands of couriers who have been part of the TWU's Fight for 40 campaign over many years, Mr Olsen said. TWU National Secretary Michael Caine said New South Wales was the first jurisdiction in the world to mandate enforceable rates for Amazon Flex drivers. The impact of this decision will be felt around the world. Gig behemoths are on notice. This is what happens when workers call out these dangerous bottom feeders and fight together for a fair day's pay. 
For too long, the likes of Amazon have been able to exploit independent contractor loopholes to sidestep rights and rip workers off fair rates of pay. Today's win confirms that it's entirely possible for all workers to have access to enforceable rights and protections, regardless of their employment status. While this outcome is incredible for drivers in parts of New South Wales, only federal regulation will end a national crisis. The federal government's sat on its hands for too long as Amazon executives live the high life on profits made by exploiting hopelessly out-of-date industrial laws. Scott Morrison must immediately put in place an independent body to establish binding standards in transport to stamp out this deadly exploitation of workers and end the decimation of traditional transport companies which comply with Australia's industrial and taxation laws. This is a huge victory. Yeah. And this is how it should be. Yeah. We should be at the forefront of the world pushing for more rights because then... Other countries will follow. A rising tide lifts all ships, comrades. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, not only is this a win against Amazon, who suck is it, Amazon. Possibly the largest company in the world, or at least one of the largest companies in the world. Suck it, it Jeffrey. Also, a win in the gig economy. Yes, which has been such a which has been such a prevalent place of hyper exploitation mm-hmm. since it emerged. Um, like, a, that's where know, a lot of people are getting their paychecks from these days. Yeah, and. And, like, it is terrible because they are getting overworked, getting underpaid, and they're just living there's in no security. poverty. And there, there's no union representation either. Until now. Until now. This yeah. is where it starts. Hell yeah. This is so exciting. The TWU has been doing great work with all sorts of gig economy, uh, like, getting gig economy workers to get what they <laughs> give them power to represent themselves and have power in their workplace um and this is like another another win for them here and it is a huge one i am ecstatic yeah me too so thank you so much to the tw for putting in all, all of those 15 years of campaigning mm. for it to finally pay off fantastic and we've got some international workers action. Yes. Uh, I'll read it out. You can read it yeah. out. So the CJ logistics strike in Seoul intensifies, and this comes to us by Martina Lee in Taiwan from the Lodestar. Uh, so industrial action by subcontracted workers of South Korea's largest logistics company, CJ Logistics, continues to drag on. The militant Korean Confederation of Trade Unions is staging a rally today in defiance of COVID-19-related restrictions on gatherings. Nearly 2,000 unionized workers demonstrated in, fr- in front of Chongye Stream in downtown Seoul, contravening rules limiting rally-, rally attendances to 299 people and carrying on a strike that began on the 28th of December. The demonstrators used a vehicle belonging to presidential candidate Kim Jae-yoon as a campaign events are not affected by the limits on gathering sizes. Since the 10th of February, around 200 unionized members have occupied the first and third floors of CJ Logistics headquarters in Seoul after forcing their way in, calling for an industry-wide strike if the firm does not agree to demands for higher wages and better working conditions. 
while CJ Logistics hiked delivery fees by 27 cents. In response to surging demand relating to more e-commerce sales, the higher fees did not translate into higher wages, with the company management's merely fattening its profits. The discontent among the workers began with complaints to the National Labor Relations Commission in June 2021, and the Commission ordered CJ Logistics to negotiate directly with the KCTU, but CJ Logistics Management has refused to bargain with the workers whom they describe as subcontractors hired by delivery agencies. This month, CJ Logistics said its 2021 net profit was up 11% year-on-year to $132.1 million. So this is a... Multi-million dollar company. Yeah. Not paying its workers and not even talking to them. So what choice do they have but to take action and to demonstrate? And they've done something very clever here because at the moment they've got these interesting COVID restrictions on gatherings where Mm. they've deemed some gatherings are allowed but some aren't. And they think that it's acceptable for any kind of... Uh, presidential campaign events they can have as many people yeah but uh unionized workers demonstrating that's not allowed no of course not no. they might catch COVID. yeah <laughs> well whereas as whereas as we know the, pre- pres- the president being there is basically makes everyone around them immune to COVID. Yes. so you don't need to worry about limits at, at like presidential mm. presidential campaign things it's I, fine i don't know much about this particular presidential candidate but uh it is a very cool Uh, tactic for them to borrow that vehicle (laughs) so that they can loophole around and have their demonstration uh, which is incredibly important nearly 2,000 unionised workers Yeah, Um, this is a breaking point and the company is still refusing to even talk to them and there's actually a lot of uh, strike action happening in South Korea at the moment. There's also some textile workers on strike and Samsung workers in South Korea going on strike for the first time ever. Wow, that is huge. So it's all happening right now. Yeah, lots of lots of uh, strikes happening in South Korea or in the headlines. Yeah, they're going through a bit of a strike wave over there. Yeah, well, we love to see it and we yeah. hope that we wish them all the best and we hope that some good um, stuff comes out of it. Uh, this company is calling them subcontractors <laughs> and using that as uh, like some kind of defense that they're not really our workers we don't have to talk to them but they've they've talked to the national labor relations commission who ordered them to talk to these workers and to, to <laughs> negotiate directly with the union with the korean federation of trade unions mm. And they're ignoring them. They've they've (laughs) ghosted the Korean Federation of Trade Unions, which has forced them to do the only thing they can, which is to take industrial action. Um, And it's really cool that that's happening, and it's on such a large scale. Yeah, and it's worth noting here that, like, of course, the company has not received any sort of, like, actual... Uh, consequence for ignoring an order from the National Labor Relations no, of course not. Why Commission would they? because they, the they law do just doesn't apply rich. to large companies. Ridiculous. Whereas if like the and workers had done something like that, then they'd probably get fined up the arse. The law doesn't apply to presidential campaigns <laughs> either. Yeah. It would seem. Um, so I think that's like a really clever tactic they've done. Hmm. We are coming to the very end of our show in two minutes, and. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we are now going to talk about our Scallywag of the Week very quickly. Uh, and we've decided 
uh, because it's easy. It's the New South Wales government. They make it so easy for us. Yeah, they, the, the New South Wales government such, shut down the new, the rail system in Sydney and disrupted everyone's day just to create a scare campaign about the unions and make everyone dislike them and hate them and try to shut down their their industrial industrial their action. <laughs> fighting for just like keep what they already have yeah which is just ridiculous uh so new south wales government more like stupid government yeah <laughs> get him <laughs> nice uh thank you very much for listening i hope you've had a good time thank you very much very much to virginia clark for the terrific interview about the punk scene in brisbane if you want to listen to that go to fortuperz.org.au slash program slash workers dash power where you can listen to it or you can go to workerspower4zz.org which is the website that i run where an edited version will be edited later in the week um maybe thursday at the latest hopefully yeah thursday stay at the tuned for brisbane lineup next yeah uh, see you next Tuesday, comrade. You go downtown, just beware. Pig City, there's a demonstration in the square. Pig City, the boys in blue are everywhere. See the blacks in the park Pig City Hear the door slam, hear the dogs bark Pig City They're keeping the city safe after dark Pig City The Minister for Corruption's working late Pig City What's the piece of the action in race, eh? Pig City No SP here, he's ringing in the state Pig City The blacks at Arakoon have to go on the go Pig City while Joe gets shares in Camalco Pig City who was the bad man who was the hit man Pig City who were the front men who were the big men Pig City in the national scam
on the boys with their dogs and guns. They don't like punks. Run, Johnny, run. Who's that knocking at the door? At 6am it must be the law. Right, you know what we're looking for. State of emergency for the box. Then to show the workers who's boss. Got rights, they're already lost. Pig City. You don't want to know you've heard it before. Pig City. But if you cop this lot, you'll sure get more. Pig City. Where to now from 84? Pig City.